And in 15 minutes, film 82 with Mariah Aitken includes a location report on Alan Parker's latest film, Shoot the Moon. This is BBC One. And now at 10.15, the news with Moira Stewart. Mr Haig leaves Downing Street for Argentina. On the Falklands, the invaders are still preparing for war. And the islanders who defy orders to drive on the right. Bulldogs presents Hope and Glory, Shoot the Moon. The Vulcan Swan Song. Written and presented by Benjamin Ansel and Merrick Wells, with original music by The Lost Clauses, adapted from the book Vulcan 607 by Roland White. Prime Minister! Mr. Speaker, sir, the House meets this Saturday to respond to a situation of great gravity. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. In April 1982, as the England Football World Cup squad were assaulting the music charts with their World Cup song, the holders, Argentina, launched an assault of a very different kind. The Falkland Islands, or Las Malvinas as Argentina refers to them, were invaded by the military junta under General Leopoldo Galtieri, calculating that the United Kingdom would not commit to a military response. Britain had no contingency plan in place for an invasion, and the Navy effectively had to cobble together a task force to steam south, comprising of Royal Navy ships and submarines, along with requisitioned ocean liners and merchant ships. The entire undertaking was considered an impossibility, with 42 Harriers available against 122 Argentinian jets, a lack of an airborne early warning aircraft, and threats posed by the surface fleet and enemy submarines. The British fleet would effectively be open targets as they sat inviting attack upon arrival, an arrival that was almost three weeks away. There was a desire to find a possible way to strike at the Argentines before that, and the RAF, which had effectively been unable to participate in the task force operations because of the sheer distances involved, hatched a quite extraordinary if not ludicrous, plan. In sleepy Lincolnshire, the crews of the RAF Falcon Bomber Wing watched the unfolding descent into war with dismay, but no real sense of impending involvement. They were seeing out the last months of Vulcan service before the jets were fully decommissioned. The Behemoth V-Wing had been the tip of the white-hot spear of British technology, when introduced as part of the UK nuclear deterrent programme in the 1950s. The RAF had been entrusted to deliver British nuclear payloads, and the Vulcan was one of three types of bomber introduced. Yet after the Navy took the nuclear deterrent, Vulcans had found themselves effectively outdated and surplus to requirements, without ever having flown a mission in anger. It was with surprise that the call came to move to Operations Alert. RAF Brass had devised a plan which had been put forward to the Prime Minister. Vulcan bombers would deliver conventional bombing runs on the airfield at Port Stanley in order to prohibit use by Argentinian strike jets. Enemy planes would have to launch from the mainland and this would help to even the odds in the control of the skies over the Falklands. There was one major drawback to the plan. 
The Vulcan had been designed to deliver to targets up to 1,500 nautical miles, or 2,800 kilometers from base. The plan to launch the Vulcan raid from Ascension Island in the middle of the Atlantic involved a direct flight distance of 6,300 kilometers. With the return to base, the Vulcan would need to cover an astonishing 6,800 nautical miles, or 12,600 kilometers. What was proposed would be the longest bombing raid in history. The plan was a logistical nightmare from the outset. In order to deliver one bomber across the vast expanse of the Atlantic, the RAF needed to marshal a squadron of Victor tankers to accompany and refuel the Vulcan. The plan was to perform a series of complicated mid-air refuelling rendezvous, with Victor tankers providing fresh reserves to the Vulcan and other Victors. Beside the obvious audaciousness of the proposal, there were substantial problems to overcome. The crews selected to prepare for the raid were led by Squadron Leader Neil McDougall, Squadron Leader John Reeve, Squadron Leader Alastair Monty Montgomery and Flight Lieutenant Martin Withers. As engineers and technicians furiously scoured stores, dumps and scrap heaps for functioning spare parts and worked tirelessly to remove resin from the refuelling pipes, the selected crews commenced in-flight refuelling training. This was variously described as taking a running stab at a rolling wet donut, getting two insects to mate in flight, attempting furiously to ram wet spaghetti up an angry cat's arse, and of course, so dangerous that the practice had been discontinued some years before. A scurrilous rumour had been perpetuated by fighter pilots that only fighters carried out in-flight refuelling, as only fighter pilots were capable. The Vulcan teams were determined to prove them wrong. After their first training sessions, it was accepted by the pilots that the act of effectively arranging mid-air collisions was much more complicated in a Vulcan than first thought. The Vulcan canopy did not enable the pilot to maintain visuals on the approaching hose and had to be talked in by his co-pilot. Several times, crews found their planes showered in aviation fuel and the grim reality was that no matter how dangerous, difficult or infuriating, they had to master the act of the entire operation was a non-starter. The training process, which would normally span several months, had to be completed in a matter of weeks. Meanwhile, Wing Commander Simon Baldwin, who lived on a diet of bacon sandwiches, coffee and pipe tobacco, was beset by further concerns. The engineers still couldn't locate all the necessary parts. He also had teams scavenging for the bomb racks and the required iron World War II bombs were proving harder to find than first realised. The Air Force had been gradually disposing of stockpiled armaments. Furthermore, he needed machined, not cast-casing bombs to ensure they would penetrate the ground before exploding. But he was desperately accepting whatever he could lay his hands on. It was also rapidly becoming apparent that the V-bomber wing did not have the appropriate navigation charts for the South Atlantic. The solution was to take North Atlantic charts and turn them upside down, and navigation officers began to re-familiarise themselves with the onboard sextant, a large piece of equipment that one navigating officer referred to as the big donkey dick. It seemed the best way to navigate the vast expanse of the South Atlantic was going to be the way it was always done in the past, by the stars. But this time, through a narrow field porthole window, rather than a full sky to calculate by. Everything about this mission seemed to be condemned to absurd impossibility, but the indomitable RAF crews progressed as the deadline approached. The crews were prepared for the possibility of capture and given guidance on the gestures to insert in hostage videos to relay information. In the mess room, they contemplated the problems with the fuel equipment. When an engineer discovered the ashtray, sat in front of them was the exact piece they had been hunting for. 
Baldwin, meanwhile, having astonishingly sourced enough £1,000 bombs, had prepared the bombing approach dynamics and this was to be a challenge in itself. The Vulcans would need to approach at low level under enemy radar, but rapidly climb back up to 1,000 feet in order to drop the bombs from a height that would enable them to gather the velocity and angle of approach to damage the runway sufficiently. The technique was called pop-up, and inevitably was something none of the crews had ever flown. This approach would expose the Vulcan to the Argentine defensive batteries. The pilots would have to squeeze every last inch of manoeuvrability from the age of machines and their best skills to get out fast. The bombing approach would be a zero visibility op and had to be targeted by radar alone. Bomb run training started on the 13th of April over Garvey Island, Scotland and the Isle of Man. This provided the perfect opportunity to assess the Scrap Heap Challenge bombing computer, which was held together with bicycle chains and pulleys. The squadron encountered an unexpected avian enemy, far more worrisome than the Argentine interceptors. Garvey Island was a paradise for seagulls, most of which were neutral in the unfolding conflict. Enter the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the UK's largest conservation charity. The RSPB, in the words of Wing Commander Simon Baldwin, were absolutely devastated that we were wiping out seagulls and requested we stop immediately. He went on. We felt very sorry for the seagulls and added with untamed sarcasm, we lied. Number 10 waits with senior ministers for news from Buenos Aires. Britain calls up its aged Vulcan bombers in case they're needed. And the Marines are on their way home after a fortnight as prisoners of Argentina. On April the 18th, as the mission crept ever closer, the crews were handed another devastating hurdle as Argentine forces were told of their impending top-secret mission. The Sunday Express headline announced to the world, Vulcans to hit Argentina! Any remaining possibility of enemy defences being caught unawares were lost. The challenges in getting the mission to a serviceable status had to be overcome. The world had been told it was going to happen. It was on April the 27th, 1982, that Alistair Monty Montgomery was roused from his sleep in the early hours of the morning by a policeman up a ladder knocking on his bedroom window. His bag was packed and this was how he was summoned to war. On 30th of April, at 22.30, the crew warmed their engines as they prepared for takeoff, flying in darkness across the featureless sea to deliver their payload of 21 1,000-pound bombs. Disaster struck almost instantly. Squadron leader John Reeve calmly observed that the minus 15 degree sea air was rushing into the cabin with an ear-piercing scream. The crew were fairly familiar with failures inside the Vulcan during training. A blinking red light or a strange sound were part of the Vulcan experience. However, as they climbed to 10,000 feet, the cabin failed to pressurize. The problem was clear, a faulty seal around the direct vision window. The rubber seal had perished and Captain Reeve and his crew were now faced with the possibility of freezing to death. They decided to have lunch first. Breaking open some sandwiches from the tin rations, the plastic wrappers were stuffed into the whizzling chasm. The wrappers weren't enough to hold together the 22-year-old, 77,000-kilogram metal bird. The Vulcan climbed and the temperature dropped. 
Captain Reeve ripped off his flight jacket and had a go at stuffing that into the problem area. Looking around at his crew, the color drained from their cheeks as they approached their minus 30 degrees centigrade, 30,000 feet cruising height. It became clear that things were going dangerously wrong. It was only four minutes into the mission and Captain Reeve reluctantly hit the RT transmission button. The announcement was met with uncharacteristic silence on XM607. Withers, who had expressed the hope of completing his RAF career without ever flying a mission in anger, who was looking forward to a beer with Monty in the club back at base after a short reserve flight, now had a 16-hour mission stretching out ahead of him. He gathered himself together and announced to his crew, Looks like we have a job of work to do, fellas. As the reserve crew shifted focus, another crisis beset the mission. It had become apparent that Victor White 4, the plane scheduled for the last fueling stage of the approach, had developed a fault on the refueling gear. She too had to return to base as a sister craft took her mission profile. By now, the fine margins were already expended. There was no more flexibility in the plan. The formation started the long drag south into the night sky as radio silence was resumed. The first refueling stage was completed without incident, one hour and three quarters into the flight. By hour four, the second refueling stage was made. Maneuvering the hulking machines into close proximity in the dark, using blinking tail lights as their only guide, the formation refueled the Vulcan and various victors refueled each other as two more of the tankers peeled off north to return to base. The three craft formations settled into their long drag flight to the Falklands with a helpful tailwind. They had no idea of the fuel crisis that was about to engulf them, or that the two victors that had started to return were also in all sorts of trouble. Red Rack Control, this is Quebec 5 Charlie. Request RV at 13 degrees 32 south, 17 degrees 48 west, over. Control understood the urgency of the suspected fuel leak and immediately messaged Elliot in the outbound TAT, stressing he should make his way to the struggling jet with appropriate haste. It would not be the first time that night victors would be sent southward with life-saving urgency. They say things come in threes. It was becoming clear that the Vulcan didn't abide by this universal rule and instead threw out challenges as fast as it could fly. Gordon Graham fretted over the 607's flight plan. There was a widening discrepancy between what the dials told him and where the flight plan and slide rule said they should be. Were they lost in the dark above the Atlantic? He tried to find comfort in the instrument panel but was confronted with further cause for alarm as they were burning fuel much faster than they should be. What could it mean? The third refueling bracket approach, which would see the flight formation reduced to just one victor and the Vulcan. They descended from the 33,000 feet cruising height to 4,000 feet for refueling. With their radars switched off in the inky darkness of night, visibility was an abstract concept. On the horizon, the darkness bruised a twist of sinister cloud welcomed the roaring birds into the heart of a refueling nightmare. The clouds on the horizon conspired around them. Withers plumbed his memory for advice that might help in the escalating situation. Some useful advice from his time in the academy bubbled into focus. The best defense against lightning is simply to avoid it. Bob Tuxford piloting the delivery Victor tanker had experienced a lightning strike on a Victor flight across the Atlantic before, only to be saved by Goose Bay Air Traffic Control talking him down to safety. This time, there was no one to help. The extremely dangerous refueling operation became near suicidal as the two Victors engaged, 
buffeted by an epic storm. The flight decks were bathed in ionized blue as St. Elmo's fire crackled around the planes. Night vision was rendered useless as lightning filled the sky at regular intervals. Biglands wrestled with the controls in an effort to guide the probe towards the swirling fuel basket ahead of them. The crews were thrown around in their harnesses as the warbird was battered by erratic air currents. Tuxford had to deliver fuel to Steve Biglands Victor to shepherd the Vulcan to target. Squadron leader Ernie Wallace watched from astern aboard the tanker as the last leg Victor repeatedly tried to make contact. Red out, maintaining a stern, closing up, miss, dropping back. In all his 25-year career with the V-Tanker crews, he had never seen anything like this. It was like trying to hand over a relay baton in torrential rain under attack from a swarm of killer bees. Insane and virtually impossible. The flight was approaching the end of the refueling window and tanker law was clear. If the end of the bracket was reached, the schedule is scrubbed. Closing up. Miss. Dropping back. Bob Tuxford glanced nervously at his co-pilot. The implications of failure were too much to contemplate. Closing up. Contact. Green on. Fuel flows. The palpable relief of having made contact quickly dispersed. The two crews were now at even greater risk as the two aging metal jets jostled in the midst of the storm, connected by an umbilical, pumping flammable liquid. The storm rumbled malevolently. Wallace looked on with rising despair. The hose oscillated. The dampeners designed to restrict uncontrolled movement had their limitations. A sudden crack rang out over the electrical storm. The refueling probe on Biglund's Victor sheared off under the strain. He's broken his probe. Wallace uttered as fuel flow was interrupted. Biglands had only received 8,000 pounds of fuel, not enough to accompany the Vulcan and return safely. Bob Tuxford decided they had to swap roles. If his refueling equipment was still serviceable, he could continue southward with the Vulcan and Biglands would return home. To do so would mean having to take back enough fuel from Biglands to complete the mission. He broke radio silence. White 4, have you left your probe in the basket? I don't know, came the anguished reply. If we're going to get away with this, the only solution is for me to take the fuel back. Can you get your hose out? The three jets rearranged formation as they continued through the storm and prepared to reverse their refueling operation. I have you on visual, White 4. You have the lead. Tuxford told Biglands. The Vulcan crew watched on helplessly as the two victims reversed roles and tried once again to connect in the storm. This time, despite all the challenges, Tuxford made a textbook contact. Fields started to flow. But mid-transfer, the oscillations became unstable, and Tuxford made the agonizing decision to break contact rather than risk damaging his probe too. Once again, faces shrouded in oxygen masks looked each other in the eye and wordlessly understood. Tuxford nosed his victor forward once again to attempt transfer. As the minutes passed, the anguish was inescapable. Tuxford demonstrated the steely determination of a V-Force pilot, locking once more with the fuel line. Yes! The cry went out amongst the Vulcan crew as if celebrating an 82 England World Cup win. At that moment, Tuxford saw stars ahead as the storm relinquished its grip and the turbulence subsided. For the first time in 20 minutes, the flight could resume a level altitude and Tuxford's knuckles eased off their whitened grip of the joystick. The fuel plan was in tatters. With Biglands refueling probe damaged, they couldn't take on any more fuel and needed enough to get home unaided. Tuxford radioed Biglands. White 4, you must leave extra reserves to get back. 
Biglin squeezed every available drop through the hose and then broke contact, climbed and turned north. They had flown way beyond the refueling bracket and Biglin's headed north with a dangerous bare minimum for the flight home. Tuxford pulled up alongside the Vulcan. The two planes were woefully short of the fuel required, 20,000 pounds short between them. No matter, they had to discover if the Victor hose was still operational before taking the mission any further. Once again, Tuxford lined up, this time in front of Withers' Vulcan. The Vulcan crew used a handheld torch to inspect the basket for damage before making contact. They couldn't see any problem, so went ahead. In the still, clear air after the storm, this was relatively straightforward and fuel started to flow. 5,000 pounds of fuel was transferred and the Vulcan crew prepared for the next stage. Tuxford's Victor crew were fully aware of the gravity of the situation. They felt that if Withers jettisoned his armaments now, they could both return home safely. But if they pressed on, they would break the cardinal rule of placing their fuel requirements in the hands of other flights. Tuxford was resolute about carrying on, but he could not volunteer his crew for potential suicide without asking them to approve. He cleared his throat and pressed the intercom. Right, we either turn back now, or pretty sharpish at least, or we press on in the knowledge that we've got to come up with an alternative plan. We may need to abandon or ditch. Say what's on your mind. I need you all to speak up. After a few moments of static, one by one, his crew responded with clarity. We've come this far. Got to keep on with the mission. Keep going. Tuxford didn't expect anything less. His crew got to work on contingency calculations for fueling strategies. They resolved to pass 8,000 pounds to 607, a clear 4,000 pounds short of what was scheduled. They pressed on in solitary silence. Breaking radio silence now would risk alerting Argentine forces to their presence. On board the Vulcan, they made the decision to turn off their navigation lights in readiness for the attack. The tin triangle was now invisible against the night sky. The final refueling bracket approached and the Vulcan lined up behind Tuxford's Victor that flashed his floodlights to signal readiness. The Vulcan crew waited and the hose did not descend. The floodlights flashed again and with horror, Withers realized they were invisible. They turned on their navigation lights and the Victor dropped the hose. When the Victor switched off flow, leaving the Vulcan 7,000 pounds of fuel short, there was utter disbelief. Tuxford banked to turn north and offered the Vulcan crew a chance to take further fuel if they followed. Withers and his crew knew that this was a fruitless task and pushed on to the target, bitter and confused, knowing they did not have enough fuel. The Vulcan was finally alone in the murky early morning blue and it started its descent to drop below enemy radar and prepare to tackle the objective. At 4am, an unfamiliar sound troubled the horizon off Port Stanley. The Argentines exchanged nervous glances as the rumble grew into a volcanic eruption. XM-607 approached at 300 feet, then bellied up on its bombing arc. Although they were in immediate danger of enemy fire, this was surprisingly one of the least dangerous episodes in the unfolding drama. The 21 bombs were released from their holding carriage and descended towards their target. As quickly as the screaming metal bird appeared, it vanished above a canopy of blossoming explosions. As they wheeled north and started to climb, they realized they would quickly cross paths with the British task force. They hastily radioed the success code word, superfuse, to avoid being shot down by their own side more than anything else. As the Vulcan crew ate into their fuel reserves, flying northwards with little hope of rescue, Withers put on the autopilot and caught some sleep. My moment 
flies over the ocean. My woman flies over the sea. My woman flies over the ocean. So bring back my woman to me. Bring back, oh bring back, oh bring back my woman to me. Finally, Lady Luck came to the party. Both Tuxford and Withers were able to rendezvous with southbound Victor tankers. The Vulcan tried to triangulate on their incoming Victor and could not make visual contact, but Withers and Russell nearly wept with joy as their Victor hoved into view in front of them, hose already deployed, as they started to exhaust the fumes left in their tank. The Victor was suffering a fuel leak and they were watching their own gauge. They asked Withers how much fuel he wanted. They asked for 36,000 pounds. The Victor captain was happy to oblige. The Vulcan drank deep, not too deep, to enable both planes home and the flight headed to Ascension and beer. When Tuxford and his crew touched down at 1 p.m. later that day, enough fuel had passed through their jet to send 10 family cars round the world twice. The Vulcan followed in later. The bombing had damaged the airport tower scored a single direct hit in the centre of the runway and killed two Air Force personnel. The runway remained operational for the Argentine C-130 Hercules, but no strike jets were to use Port Stanley. Reports of the damage caused by the following six runs are mixed. A later operation saw luck on mid-Atlantic rendezvous runout, and the mission Vulcan landed at Rio de Janeiro airport, causing a major diplomatic incident. The Vulcan is a bomber that defies the limitation of what is possible. It's heavy, it's clumsy, it really shouldn't fly. It sounds like it's going to combust at any moment, rip it apart, rebuild it with ashtrays and sandwich wrappers, and it can still refuel midair in an electrical storm. But a jet is nothing without its crew, and everyone involved in this remarkable story helped make the impossible possible. The pilots and crews risked their lives against the odds embodying a spirit of adventure, courage and defiant resourcefulness that was symbolic of the final days of an era in British history. Operation Black Buck was a mission brimming with RAF never-say-die determination when men took a shot for the moon with an air pistol and scored a direct hit. Oh, 